This here is a good day. In fact, it's a great day. Part of the reason it's a great day is we are beginning a brand new sermon series this morning. Dun, 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 dun. We are going to be going through a book of the Bible together called Daniel. Somebody help me out and say Daniel. It is an Old Testament book. We're going to be going through the whole thing verse by verse. We're going to take 12 weeks. It's going to spend most of the fall in this book, and it's going to be awesome. Now, here's the thing. This is just a little sidebar for you. The Lord really put this book on my heart a number of months ago, let's say like early spring. And one of the things about my job and role as your guy's pastor is to lead and feed. That's basically my job. And as far as this book of Daniel goes, the Lord really started putting on my heart, like, you guys need to go through this together, this book of Daniel. And you know what my first answer was to the Lord? I said, why? <laughs> that was the wrong answer. He corrected me on that one. And then uh, I told the elders about it months ago. I'm pretty sure the Lord wants us to do Daniel. And they said, why? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. Ask him, okay? Anyway, so as the, the months have gone on, I, I, I mean, I get excited about going through any book of the Bible with you guys. It's awesome. It's great. It's what we need. But this is like a little bit something different. This is like a, a good kind of burden on my heart. I don't know what the Lord has in store for us in this book, but I just have this feeling and a sense in my spirit that it's right now and it's for a reason and he's going to do something. And guess what? God actually promises that he's going to do something with his word. Amen? So that being said, I don't mean to downplay the book of Daniel at all. It's an awesome book. It's just kind of a little bit of a different book in some ways. We'll end up talking about things that we don't often or always talk about. You know what? That's a good thing. And Daniel is full of other awesome stuff. There's all kinds of history in it. There's prophecy in it. There's warning in it. There's truth in it. It's completely relevant to the times we live in right now. And it's full of stuff about Jesus Christ. That's what we need. Amen? So Daniel is going to be a lot of fun. Now, I would invite you to turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to be going through Daniel chapter 1 today. Uh, it's an Old Testament book, as I said. It's probably about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. You can use your table of contents at the start if you want. That doesn't bother me any. You can look up on your phone. That doesn't bother me any. But Daniel 1, and just put your finger in there on Daniel 1, because we're going to unpack a couple of things before we jump right into the start of this book. I wanted to give you a little bit of background and context on the book of Daniel so we can understand it even better. Its author is a guy named Daniel. Imagine. I don't know how we ever got to that, but no, it is. Daniel wrote this book. He, when he was a young Jewish man, he was caught up in one of the darkest periods in the whole history of the nation of Israel. It was called the Babylonian exile. Exile. They were deported. His whole nation pretty well was sent away to a foreign land where they were oppressed by another nation. And Daniel, when he was in exile in Babylon, he was trained there, educated there. Some might say he was brainwashed there. He was indoctrinated there, but he actually rose up through the system and he served in some really high influential places in the nation of Babylon, even in the nation of Persia afterward. And this book describes events that took place between 605 B.C. and 536 B.C. Somebody say, that was a long time ago. It was. That was during his lifetime, and it was a long time ago. This is not a new book. It's an old book, between 25 and 2,600 years old. Hello. But as I said earlier, this book of Daniel unsurprisingly, because it's the Word of God, this book of Daniel is as relevant today as it was the day that it was written and the ink wasn't even dry on the page yet. You're going to see what I mean as we go through this book. Completely timely, completely relevant. Now, if you read the book of Daniel, there are two main sections in it. Just two. You can handle two, right? Yep, four of you can. Okay. The rest of you will pray for you. Now, two main sections. The first one, the first half of the book, Daniel 1 through 6, it's largely about, uh, largely about the life and times of Daniel. Here's the story. Here's what went down. Here's what happened. It's fascinating. It's interesting. Going to be really good to go through that. And the second half of the book, chapter 7 through 12, it sort of takes on a different tone. It's more prophetic in nature, prophecy. Somebody say prophecy now. 
prophecy being the will and the plan of God being declared usually before it happens. We're going to see that. The prophecy in Daniel is immense. There's a lot of it. And actually critics of the Bible, this is one of the reasons they hate the book of Daniel. Because the prophecies made in the book of Daniel are incredibly accurate, detailed. It might in a good way kind of freak you out how accurate and specific they are. Some of those prophecies that were uttered in Daniel took place later in Daniel's lifetime. They came true. Some of them uh, were fulfilled after Daniel's lifetime, but before ours, let's say like three or four or 500 years after Daniel lived. Some of them haven't even been fulfilled yet, but they're gonna be all kinds of prophecy in Daniel. Now, as far as themes go of this book, we could talk about a lot of little minor uh, micro themes in the book of Daniel, but the three big themes, the three big pillars in the book of Daniel, you can see them on the screen. If you're taking notes, I want you to write those down, by the way, or type them in your phone. I won't think that you're texting, don't worry. The three pillars of Daniel, the mega themes, the mega truths in Daniel. Number one, when the culture around you is fallen and broken, God is still God. Right, the culture that we live in, the culture that Daniel lived in, it was going like this, nosedive off the cliff, right? But God doesn't change. In fact, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God is still God in the midst of the crazy culture. Similar, number two, when the culture around us is fallen and broken, we can still be faithful. Culture is going off the side of the mountain, right? And it's like a landslide like this. But you actually don't have to get caught up in the landslide. It is possible for you to rise above and to keep your head above water. We'll talk about all that in this book of Daniel. And the third thing, oh, this is where our hope comes from as Christians right here. It's not in the culture getting better. It's not in the economy turning around. It's the fact that Jesus Christ is the king over a kingdom and his kingdom prevails over all other kingdoms and all other cultures and all other spirits. In other words, Jesus wins. Is that good news today? Yes, you can clap at that part. That's good. So that's a little bit of background on this book. We're going to see all of that as we study it together. But let's begin, shall we? Somebody says, you didn't even begin yet? I did not. I did not. Daniel chapter 1. Let's read the first seven verses of Daniel 1, and then we'll unpack these together. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, there will not be a spelling test on Nebuchadnezzar after service. Okay, you're welcome. Don't say I never did anything for you. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Notice that small g, God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some... That'll be fun to talk about that part, just saying. His chief eunuch... Somebody got it, okay. To bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. That's another fancy word for Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. We often know those as Rakshak and Benny from the Veggie Tales, all right? That'll work. That'll work. So... Here's what's happening in the early part of Daniel chapter 1. It says, In the third year of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that was the year 605 B.C., that gives us the historical timeline for what's happening here. This is a real thing in the history books. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. Now, back in those days in the ancient world, battles, wars, sieges, etc. were very common. I mean, they still happen today. But back then, it wasn't uncommon at all. Like a certain time of year would come and the king and his army would go out and they would do battle and they would make war and all that stuff. And Jerusalem was not immune to that. They had been attacked and besieged before. But this time was different. Something happening here 
Something was happening here that wasn't supposed to happen. Here's what you need to understand. Jerusalem is the city of God. It's Mount Zion. It's where the temple in this time resided, where God's presence was on the earth. Here's what you need to know about Jerusalem and about Israel, okay? The narrative of the Bible is this. God created all things. How many things did he create? All of them. All things and all people. And he loves all people equally, strongly, deeply, unconditionally. If you, you just need to know this morning, God loves you. Turn to your neighbor and tell them that God loves you. God loves you. He does. And God created us to worship him and to walk with him and to enjoy him and to be in a relationship with him. We've talked about all this stuff before as a church. That's what life is supposed to be like for us. But we have all sinned, right? We have all done things, thought things, failed to do the right things, and that separates us from God. Our rebellion, our falling short of God's perfect standard, that makes it so that we can't just have that relationship with God on our own because he's perfect and we're not. That's a problem. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So we've all brought sin into our camp, and therefore we've all brought death into our camp. By all rights, we should go through this life because of our sin and not be connected relationally to God at all because we don't deserve to be because we've blown it. And then when we die, we die apart from the favor and the blessing of God, and we're sentenced, and we go to hell. That's a real place. There's even fire on the background on the screen, just saying, okay? I don't know why I said that, but anyway. So, that's a problem for us. But God, God so loved the world, right? That sound familiar? God so loved the world that he set forth this rescue mission. He, he looked at us in our fallen, sinful, broken state, and he says, I'm going to do something about that. So way back in the early parts of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, God starts putting this plan into motion to save the world from their sins. And part of what God does to this end is that he forms a family of people for himself. We would call them the Israelites, the Jews, the nation of Israel. He started with a guy named Abraham. He says, I'm calling you out, singling you out. I'm going to bless you. Your descendants are going to multiply. You're going to be my prized possession, my people on the earth. So it's not that God only loves Israel and he loves no one else, but Israel is a, holds a special place in God's heart because they are his chosen people. They are the vehicle through whom the rest of the world is to be blessed because Israel was supposed to live set-apart lives for God. They were supposed to represent the rule and reign of God on the earth. And then as just this little, not very important, wink-wink bonus, the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was going to come through the family of Israel, which he did. And, and, and through that be a blessing to all the nations. Now all people can be saved through Jesus. Is this making sense so far? God said to his people Israel, all through the Old Testament, hey, not only is all that stuff true, but, but if you, Israel, will be faithful to me, I will bless you, I will protect you, you will prosper. Deuteronomy 28 says, I will set you high above all the other nations on the earth. You will be the head and not the tail. That's how it went for a while in the days of King David and King Solomon. Israel was the place to be. It was the happening spot. But did Israel stay faithful to God? No. That's a big, fat no. They, and we can't judge them because we'd have done the very same thing if we lived back then, just saying. They were unfaithful to God. Time after time, year after year, generation after generation. And God, see, God's very loving. God's very patient. How many of you know God's patient with us? We're, we're very fortunate that God is patient with us, okay? And God, time after time, sent warning to his people. Hey, you guys got to smarten up. He sent the prophets along to say, you guys got to wake up. You guys got to snap out of this. You guys got to repent and turn to the Lord. And they didn't do it. And God... Like any parent disciplining their children, eventually his wick runs out. Parents, is that true of you and your kids? Your wick runs out eventually. Even if they're really well behaved and you're really nice, your wick runs out. And that's what happened with the Lord. He said, look, if you want to sin so badly, if you want to, the Bible literally says, whore after other gods and other idols so badly, 
If you want to do this your way so badly, if you want to take control and take the wheel in your life so badly, God says, okay, go ahead and see how that goes for you. Doesn't mean he doesn't love you, but he gives them over. That's what it says. The Lord gave the Jews into the hands of the Babylonians. God did that to discipline because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. So let that be like a warning for us too. Again, if you're a Christian, you're saved, you have salvation, you're going to heaven, awesome, 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 and you can't like lose that and nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Yes, yes, yes. But that doesn't mean that if we get caught up in a pattern of sin and we're just determined, I'm gonna do it this way. And the Lord says, please don't do it that way. No, I'm doing it this way. I really wish you wouldn't. No, I'm doing it. Give me the wheel. I'm driving this thing, Jesus. Romans 1 talks about this. The Lord sometimes gives us over. He says, okay, I'm right here. I love you. And when you come to your senses, I'm right here. That's the story of the prodigal son. I'm right here. But when we do that and the Lord gives us over, like that's not, hey, look at me. Now I'm free and I'm independent. No, you're going down a road of destruction. It's gonna be bad for you. So we gotta wake up. We gotta smarten up just like the Israelites needed to. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he appears on the scene and he brought them to the land of Shinar. You can see in small font, get your readers on people and then put another pair of readers on top of that. This right here was the empire, the nation of Babylon at its height. Let's talk about Babylon a little bit for a minute. First of all, that teal section that was the height of, of their empire, the expanse of the territory they took. On the bottom, that like bluish teal part toward the bottom, that's down into present day Saudi Arabia. On the right, it gets over into uh, Iraq and Iran. Up top, it goes up into Turkey. The stuff on the kind of left side, that's where Israel and Lebanon are and stuff. Uh, Jerusalem, I'm not gonna go up there and point to it, get on a ladder, but it's on the left. The city of Babylon is almost all the way over on the right. You can see it in slightly bigger font with a little yellow dot next to it. They were taken from Jerusalem to the land of Shinar. That's where the city of Babylon was. That's over 500 miles. And let me just say, they didn't hop on the charter flight to the land of Shinar. You know what they did? They walked. And I don't know if you know much about the geography of that part of the world. It's pretty much all desert. Not a pleasant walk. 500 miles. Eh, I don't think so. But that's what they did. Now, Babylon. Babylon was the world superpower in this day. They were not the world superpower for all that long. 100 years, 150, depends where you look, what, what sources you look at. But at this time, they were the happening spot. They had undertaken military campaigns under Nebuchadnezzar and his predecessor. They took territory. That's like a fair bit of territory. They were brutal. They were cruel military-wise. Babylon was a very advanced society. And Nebuchadnezzar is famous for the building projects that he undertook. Construction is happening. Progress is being made. We're building stuff. It's this famous place that everyone looks how we look to New York now or whatever, some other big city. It was like that. In fact, the city of Babylon, it's believed that was the first city ever in history to eclipse a population of 200,000 plus people in the one city. So it's influential. It's a major city. It was also a very pagan city and nation. Uh, they had many gods. They were very spiritual in Babylon. Their main deity was this false god named Marduk. I'm probably not saying that right, and I don't really care if I'm saying it right. Uh, and there were a minimum at least seven other somewhat major but not as major gods, small g gods in Babylon. But they had many others as well. In fact, even the name Nebuchadnezzar translates to Nabu, watch over my air. Nabu being a false god. They were pagan. They were also, this probably won't shock you when I tell you, they were sexually wild in Babylon, right? So like I say, Babylon is a city, but they're also a nation. They're also an empire and their influence spread out to all that place in the teal colors there. So all across there, they were wild. It was nuts sexually. It was an open, liberal, 
you look over here and the sex is there and you look over there and it's there and you look over here and here it is again. It was just all over the place. They flaunted sex and sexuality. Homosexuality was widely practiced. It wasn't really looked down on too much. There were marriage markets in Babylon where you could go. It was basically a form of slavery. You'd say, yeah, I'll take that one and you buy them. There was temple prostitution. They were into orgies, all kinds of stuff. They were, the internet literally said these words. They were obsessed with sex obsessed that tells you something so let me just like sum up babylon the city of babylon and the nation that went out from it in the blue babylon was powerful babylon was advanced babylon was spreading its culture all across the land they were very spiritual people but not pertaining to god and the holy spirit and they were sexually liberal i wonder does that sound like any culture that might exist today perhaps in a country called Canada that you might have heard of before. It's eerily similar, okay? That's why I say this book, timely as ever. So in Babylon, the Israelites, far from home, they were subjected to a systematic brainwashing, essentially, at the hands of the Babylonians. Make no mistake, the Babylonians wanted to turn the Israelites into Babylonians, they wanted to eradicate all their past and all their history and all the things that they believe and you're going to be Babylonians now. And you, even just in the stuff we've just read, here's a list of things. Here's a list of tactics the Babylonians employed. Even just what we read in Daniel chapter 1. First of all, they would isolate you. Isolate you. So I said that Israel was exiled from their homeland to this land of Shinar. But what you need to know about the Babylonian exile is it didn't happen all at once. It happened in multiple different waves. And Daniel was among the first wave of exiles that got sent away. So now he's over there in Babylon, but he's got people and compatriots and probably family and friends back at home. And he's in this faraway foreign place. Guess what happens when you're isolated like that? You become vulnerable. You become like the poor lone wildebeest that leaves the, the herd of the rest of the wildebeest. You watched National Geographic before? Just saying. The lion is prowling around in the grass and he doesn't go near the herd of wildebeest because the lion can't take on the entire herd of wildebeest. But if you're the dumb wildebeest and you got your head down and you're grazing and drinking and the herd goes this way and you go this way, now you're by yourself. And guess who else appears? The lion. And it makes a really good National Geographic special. Just saying. It does. It does. Not for the wildebeest, but for us and for the lion, it's pretty good. It's like that. You're like the coal that gets removed from the fire, right? Eventually, the flame is going to die out. Because when you're isolated, you're vulnerable, the enemy is much more likely to be able to get at you. You're, you're much more likely to be subject to being open to learning new things and trying new things because you're isolated. You're apart from uh, the positive influence of your family and those that you love. Another thing that the Babylonians did is they would sort of try to dilute the history and the faith of the Israelites. You can see it right there. It says Nebuchadnezzar took some of the vessels of the house of God, capital G, true God, Vessels. So the Israelites, they employed certain vessels and implements in their worship, right? We don't as much, but they did. They had golden things and, and all kinds of stuff. Really important to them. Nebuchadnezzar takes those. He brings them away. He brings them to the house of his small G God and places them in the treasury of his small G God. That word treasury is kind of key. He's acknowledging, yeah, these things kind of seem important, but he's going to put them in amongst a whole bunch of other things dilute your faith. To dilute something is to basically water it down so it's less potent. So it packs less of a punch. If you dilute chemicals, you pour water in and it doesn't have the same kind of power when you pour it on. So right here, what you're seeing is things of God mixed in with other common things like it's no big thing. It just dilutes the power that those things were supposed to have. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But another thing the Babylonians did, another tactic they employed was they tried to bring about sexual confusion. Again, that couldn't possibly pertain to us. We can't possibly be talking about that in a few minutes. 
When it says here, the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel. You could read that and blow right past it. But it struck me this week. I said, what does the chief of the eunuchs have anything to do with this? Right? These guys came as exiles and prisoners, and he sends them to the chief of the eunuchs. Do you know what a eunuch is, by the way? In case you don't, I guess I won't try to soften it. It's someone whose genitalia are removed for different reasons, but that's the biological effect. They're, uh, they're cut off. They are. And the reason why people were eunuchs would vary. Some people were eunuchs by choice. Some people were eunuchs not by choice. Sometimes what would happen is if you got captured or subjected and put in, for instance, like Daniel, in the court of the king, if you were close to the king, a lot of times you would be literally castrated because they didn't want you messing around with other people in the palace. I don't know if, really if there's another way to say that other than that. They wanted to make sure that you weren't getting in and like procreating and, and affecting the bloodline and all these things. So that would guarantee that that couldn't happen. Also though, the Babylonians would do this to people to cause sexual confusion, to make people even asexual. I'm not even interested. Or now at least, at least I don't even know what to do with these urges that I'm feeling. And, and now people that are made eunuchs, they're not able to express themselves sexually in the way that God created them to do. It's very, 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 very likely that Daniel was made a eunuch. Very likely. How's that for a bad day, right? Just saying. Cause sexual confusion. That just, that, I can't imagine. I would think that would mess with your mind pretty good. We'll leave it at that. Next one, one of the things that the Babylonians would do is they would go after the influencers, right? It says here, he sent them to get people of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish and of good appearance. This is just the law of marketing right here, right? If you can get the people who are influencers, right? The, the royals, the nobles, right? Think of like the British royal family. There's literally my grandmother subscribed to a magazine that she gets every month all about the royal family. She really cares about the royal family. She pays attention to what they wear and what they do. Lots of people do. So if you can get people paying attention to these influencers, and if you get the influencers, you get their followers too. Because if, oh, King so-and-so's doing it, that important social media person's doing it, maybe I should. That's just the law of marketing. That's why I don't mean this wrong at all. Watch my hands. This is why attractive people are in commercials. Right? Oh, that person's beautiful. I want skin like them. I better buy the face cream. I don't know. I just made that up. Okay. <laughs> but that's what's happening. If you get the influencers, you're more likely to get everyone else who's under their influence. Another thing the Babylonians would do, oh Lord, help me on this, they would go after the young people. Bring youths without blemish. Why do we care about the youth? Because if you get the youth, you get all of their years of influence up ahead. And you get their future generations, unless they were eunuchs. I shouldn't have said that. Anyway, you get all of that and you get the future because if you, if you are brainwashed at a young age and then you grow up to have kids, you'll teach them everything that you've ever known and everything that they've ever known. And it's generational and cyclical. They would go after the youth. We're going to talk about that. Another thing they would do, the Babylonians would go after the education system, right? It says here they wanted to teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They literally were forced to go to school in Babylon to learn the ways and the philosophy and the history and all this thing of Babylon. And if you do that, if you can say to people, hey, this is the truth here in Babylon. This is what we believe here in Babylon. Everyone around here does. You should really believe it too. Well, eventually you're more likely to get those people to buy into it. Especially when you consider like the influence that teachers have over kids, for instance. I don't know, I learned this at school. It must be true. And they want the educated people. They want people that can be in professional roles and in influential roles who are educated in the ways of the Babylonians. We'll talk about that too. 
Another thing the Babylonians would do is they would try to cause these people to forget who their provider really was, what their source really was. It says the king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate. Interesting, right? You would think these people were brought in as slaves and subjects in a way. You would think, what is there to eat around here? I don't know, go check the dumpster. But that's not what happens. A daily portion of the food that the king ate. Just saying, the king probably ate pretty well. There's a reason why the expression, we ate like kings, exists. Okay, so if you would get food and provision from the king's table, man, your allegiance is so much more likely to be to him because, hey, I don't know, King Nebuchadnezzar seems pretty good. He feeds me really well. Why would I want to go anywhere else? I get to eat from the king's table in Babylon. It's all about changing their allegiance, forgetting who their true provider really is. And the other thing that the Babylonians would do is they would try to cause these people to forget who they really are. Notice the names here. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These are all Jewish Hebrew names. And by the way, names now still mean something, but names in the ancient world, very, very important, very symbolic. They represented your identity, who you are. The name Daniel in Hebrew means God is my judge. The name Hananiah means God has been gracious. The name Mishael means who is what God is, who is like God. The name Azariah means God has helped. Notice God all through them. Boom, boom, boom. I'm a child of God. I'm connected to God. My life pertains to God. You see that? Well, their names were changed. Daniel to Belteshazzar. The name Belteshazzar, a Babylonian name, means Bel will protect. Bel, a false demon Babylonian god. Hananiah's name is changed to Shadrach. That means inspired by Aku, another false small g god. Mishael means belonging, or he changed to Meshach, changed to belonging to Aku, false god. Azariah is changed to Abednego. That means servant of Nago, false god. They're literally attacking their identity, who they really are. These tactics employed by the Babylonians, so important, so deliberate, because the whole point of it was to make you a Babylonian, was to change your allegiance from whatever your allegiance used to be to, and now it's to Babylon. And if we ended it right there, you know what? We'd have a nice historical little story here. This is something that happened in the past, but doesn't happen anymore. But guess what? Here is what you need to know. Listen closely. Babylon is not just a place. Babylon is also a spirit. See, I told you we were going a different direction here in Daniel, right? But this is so important to know. You need to understand that we live in the physical, known, seen realm. Right? We can employ our five senses and we can see, hear, taste, smell, touch things and, and that's how we relate to the world around us. Right, Equally as real to the physical seen realm that you and I live in is a spiritual realm. That's where God is. God is spirit, the Bible says. He, he resides in heaven. It's a place that we can't just look with our five senses and see or smell or whatever. But it's real. It's there. And things happen in the spiritual realm that spill over into this realm. The effects of what happened in the spiritual realm can be sensed here. For instance, uh, here's an example. It's like if you looked outside and the wind was blowing, you can't see the wind, right? You can see the effect of the wind. The leaves are and the branches are moving, but you can't see the wind. That's like how it is in the spiritual realm. And some things that happen in the spiritual realm and spill over into this realm are really good things, God things. Like when God moves, when the Holy Spirit moves, like he has done today and lots of other times in our church. Like that's spiritual activity in the spiritual realm that has strong effect in this realm. Are you, is this making sense? But you need to understand that not everything that happens in the spiritual realm is good or from God. You need to understand that. Here's the narrative of the Bible. Again, God creates all things. How many things? All things. Among what God created were heavenly angelic beings, angels. Yeah, we believe in angels. Sorry, not sorry. Okay. These were created as ministers to be in God's presence in the spiritual realm, to worship him, to serve him. One of those angels 
went by the name of Lucifer. We know him now as Satan. And Satan, a beautiful, powerful angel, he looked at God and he said, I want to be God. I want to be worshipped. I want to be served. I want to be honored. I want to sit on the throne. The scriptures tell us that Satan rebelled against God in heaven. A war broke out in heaven. Satan and those angels loyal to him waged war on God. And guess what? They lost. They just lost. I don't know if it was like an easy, you know, whatever, or how big the battle was, or how long it raged on for, and, but God won. No, no surprise. God wins. Satan and these fallen angels, they were cast out of God's presence. They still exist. They're still around. They're still moving, working, doing things. And their effect can be seen in the physical realm that we live in. We call those demons, by the way. Demons have names. It got real quiet in here all of a sudden. Demons. Yes, we believe in demons. Not apologizing for that. They have names. They are real. They are at work. They have roles and assignments. And one of these demonic spirits is known as the spirit of Babylon. And it's so important that you understand this. The definition is on the screen here. The spirit of Babylon is a demonic spirit that works to attach your allegiance to Satan instead of Jesus. I'll say that again. You can write it down. You can take a picture. The spirit of Babylon is a demonic spirit that works to attach your allegiance to Satan instead of Jesus. Because remember, Satan wants your worship. Satan wants to be praised. He wants to sit on the throne. So the spirit of Babylon, everything that it does is to yank you off of Jesus and onto Satan. Sounds intense. Because it kind of is. That's a real thing. The spirit of Babylon wants your allegiance to the kingdom of Satan, not the kingdom of Jesus. Something you need to see in this text. It says that the Israelites were taken to the land of Shinar. Remember we said that already in verse 2? The land of Shinar has come up before in the scriptures. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, that's where you first see that. Genesis 11 is an account where the people got together and they said, we want to build a tower to the heavens. We want to ascend to the place of God. We want to rule and reign as God. We don't need God. We're going to go around God. And so they start to build this tower. And God looks down and he says, I don't think so. And he throws them into confusion and it doesn't happen. But that was known as the Tower of Babel. Guess what that later became? The city of Babylon. So make no mistake, the Israelites are in this place, in Babylon, the world superpower of the day for a reason. Like I said, Babylon was only the world superpower for a very short period in history, and yet it's at this moment that the Lord chooses to send his people there, to discipline them. It's not by accident, because that land of Babylon, that place of Babylon, represents the spirit of Babylon. That represents godlessness and pride and idolatry, and I want to sit on the throne. I want my allegiance to not be on God. That's the spiritual implication of the land of Babylon. God's people in God's, of God's kingdom are now in a place that represents Satan's kingdom. It's deeply spiritual. It's deeply symbolic. It's deeply important. The spirit of Babylon did not just exist back then, by the way. The spirit of Babylon has existed since, and it continues to exist. It's not going to exist forever. There's going to come a day where Jesus comes back, and he crushes it under his feet. But until that day, the spirit of Babylon is alive and well, and it affects Entire nations, entire countries, entire governments, entire corporations, the whole thing. Whether it's the city of Babylon in the, in the Old Testament or the nation of Egypt in the book of Exodus or the city of Nineveh in the Old Testament or just go right on through the line. It still exists now. And it also affects individuals as well. Anytime you come into that pull in your life where you're trying to pull the reins away from Jesus and you're trying to do things your own way and I really want to take the steering wheel, that's the spirit of Babylon rearing its ugly head and trying to get at you in your life. From things that seem so innocent and simple to the deepest, most wicked of sin in your life, that's the spirit of Babylon and what it does. You need to understand it's at work today. 
It's at work right now. The spirit of Babylon is still active in our day and our culture. And guess what? It hasn't changed its tactics. It's still doing the exact same stuff today that it did 2,600 years ago. If you go to the next slide, please, you flash this list up. Of that's the, we talked about all of these, the tactics of the spirit of Babylon. Guess what? All those still happening today. He tr it tries to isolate people today. This is where you get Christians who say, ah, I don't need the church. It's just me and Jesus. I do church in the woods by myself. And they do the lone wolf routine. And I'm generalizing when I say this. But then when that happens, they become vulnerable. And the enemy steps in and has his way. I've seen it, you've seen way too many Christians who were walking with Jesus, got themselves hived off and separated, went down a dark road, and now they would say, I'm not even a Christian anymore. Spirit of Babylon, trying to change your allegiance. The spirit of Babylon still is trying to dilute our faith. Remember I said about the idols, or, or the, the, the vessels of the temple of God, now they're in the temple of some pagan God, like it's just normal. All the stuff of God is mixed in with all the other stuff that's not of God. He's still trying to do that in our life today. This is where you got people who, yeah, oh yeah, 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 I, I love Jesus, sure. But they're caught up. Essentially, they worship other things in this life that take priority and precedence. Like, like, for instance, some people worship their job. Yeah, your job's important, but it's not Jesus. It shouldn't be at the same level of Jesus. It shouldn't be right next to Jesus in the order of importance. Some people worship their money. There's not anything wrong with your money, but it's not supposed to be right next to Jesus in the same vein of importance. Some people worship pleasurable experiences and recreation. Some people worship YouTube, spend all their day on their phone. There's, there's not anything wrong with any of these things in and of themselves. But when things come to the same level as Jesus in our lives, right, when our priorities are sometimes they get ahead of Jesus or Jesus just becomes one sock drawer in the whole dresser. Listen, your faith is being diluted and you're being deceived. Because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And if you settle for something less, if you put something else at the center of your life, alongside of or over top of Jesus, you are being deceived. And what happens is, your faith gets diluted, and then when push comes to shove, oh, it's actually not as strong as I thought it was. And this is where you give in to temptation really easily. This is where your faith gets rocked every time a crisis comes along because you've allowed the spirit of Babylon to influence you to put things in, in, in a different order of importance than Jesus at the top and now you're reaping the reward of that. It's not much of a reward. It's Jesus first. Everything else must be second. Anything else is the spirit of Babylon. The spirit of Babylon is still causing and creating sexual confusion today. This is why sex is such a disproportionately huge conversation in our culture. Lori and I were talking about this this week. It doesn't make any sense when you think about it. What, what, like why sex and sexuality are so in your face today. Why it's just screamed at you and shoved down your throat and it, this is everything. When you stop and think about it, it's like, wait a sec. Sex and sexuality are important. They're powerful things, but they're only one part of you. It's not everything. They're not Jesus. They're gifts from Jesus if we use them the right way. But the culture just screams in every hot button issue these days. It's about sex and sexuality and gender and all of these things. It's because of the spirit of Babylon. Because the enemy knows that sex and sexuality, these are powerful areas of our life. And if he can infiltrate those and influence those, he can cause all sorts of damage. So the spirit of Babylon works around the clock to push this out to the front and to put it right out in front of us all the time and you need to pay attention to this. Hold on a sec. It's not everything. But it's really easy to worship sex as a god. Wrongly. But that's the spirit of Babylon. That's why every song, every billboard, every TV show, sex just delivering the mail to you. Another thing the spirit of Babylon is still doing is going after the influencers. See, he's doing the same thing as he used to do. Except there's a thing called the internet to work through now. Right? Things go viral on social media. Do you ever notice the things that go the most viral are usually the most wicked, stupid, 
waste of time things. Like the Bible isn't, well, it kind of is, but not in the mainstream going viral because the spirit of Babylon doesn't want the Bible going viral on the internet. It's going viral in other ways. There are certain parts of the world, man, Jesus is just like a wrecking ball. He's going through some stuff, which is awesome. But I digress. Influencers, people in important positions, positions of authority and influence. Because if you can get them, you can get all their followers. If you watch something on TikTok and go, oh my word, there's been 8 billion views of this little video on TikTok. Everyone's doing it. I must do it. Again, that's why the quote, attractive people are in the commercials. It's the spirit of Babylon trying to lure you away. The spirit, God help me, the spirit of Babylon goes after our young people. Why do you think it is right now that all the drama is happening in the school system? I don't mean this wrong. It's going to come across wrong, and I'm sorry, and I'll apologize to you later. But notice that all the drama right now is not in the nursing home. I love you. I'm not, I'm not being age-specific. God loves all people. But it's in the schools because our schools are full of our kids. And if we can brainwash the kids, we can do all kinds of damage. The spirit of Babylon, all this foolishness you hear about in the news, all of the gender ideology that's taught in the classroom is the spirit of Babylon. One thousand percent. Right in that vein, the spirit of Babylon, sidebar actually, you got to pray for your kids. We as a church got to pray for our kids. Downstairs here, we got to pray for our kids. Seriously. Because I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but it actually is possible to defeat and overcome the spirit of Babylon. So we got to be praying for that. We got to be praying not only that these kids get saved at a young age, which many of them have, awesome. Pray for the, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Pray for good discernment. When they're sitting this week in classrooms in the school, pray for good judgment and knowing, okay, I'm learning this, but I know that's not true. Pray for them for their witness to other kids around them too. Pray for the kids. We need to. Lord, Lord, Lord. The education system, the spirit of Babylon, like I say, that's why all the drama is in the education system right now. That's why so much anti-Christian content is in the school system, depending where you go. Because again, if you can teach this stuff to kids when they're young and impressionable, or you teach it in universities, like how many times have we heard, oh yeah, I was a Christian, and I went off to college, and I took a philosophy course, and now I'm a, a Confucianist, or I'm a, I'm a Buddhist, or I'm an atheist, or I'm a whatever. Because education is powerful. And if the spirit of Babylon can infiltrate it, it can do all kinds of damage. The spirit of Babylon wants you to forget who your provider is too. There are so many people in the world right now, in this part of the world, why would I need God? I have a good job. I make good money. Food in the fridge. I'm healthy. Right? I got everything I need. I drive a nice car. So What? You need Jesus. And the spirit of Babylon tells you, hey, you're fine. Don't worry. What, 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 I lack nothing. Why would I look to God? There's a reason why Jesus said it's so difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not, not even rich like super wealthy, but, but people that have all their earthly needs met. People who belong to the shrinking middle class or whatever that means. I used to think it was because, oh, there's so much expected of you if you're rich. And if you don't give away enough of your money, God's going to be mad at you. And that's not why at all. It's because in your riches, in your wealth, you're going to be content and you're not going to think, I need God. You're not going to think that. So the spirit of Babylon is just numbing people to that. Man, I know I have friends, good friends, that are exactly in that camp. I'm sure you do too. Why do I need God for? I don't need to be saved. I'm doing fine. You're actually not. Spirit of Babylon. And finally, the spirit of Babylon going after your identity. Cause you to forget who you really are. Again, you never used to hear the I identify as conversation. Never used to hear it. And now it's so prominent. So prominent. Spirit of Babylon. Because if you forget what God says you are and who God says you are, man, the spirit of Babylon's got you in its grips already. If you forget, especially as a Christian, man, I am a child of God. I am born again in Jesus Christ. I am glory bound. I am a citizen of heaven. I belong to Jesus. He defines me. If the spirit of Babylon can cause you to forget that, you're toast. 
Because when you know who you are, you know what to do. And when you don't know who you are, you don't know what to do. Spirit of Babylon is all through that. So that's the idea, right? The spirit of Babylon is at work today, working to keep your allegiance, change your allegiance, fix your allegiance anywhere but to Jesus. Because really, if it's anywhere but Jesus, you're on team Satan. Not sorry. That's the way it works. And he'll do it. The spirit of Babylon will go after you, maybe just chipping away at you gradually or trying to wash you away with a flood. The spirit of Babylon will cause confusion and lying and chaos and will shift your focus to do anything to get you off of Jesus and away from Jesus. This is why so many people are like deconstructing their faith right now. This is why so many people are rejecting Jesus and the Bible. This is why so many people are settling for spirituality. Don't make this mistake. Canada's a very spiritual place. A lot of it just isn't the Holy Spirit. This is the spirit of Babylon at work. And it's literally a battle for your allegiance. It's literally a battle for the throne of your heart. It's literally a battle between God and Satan. It's literally a battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. It's literally a battle over who your king is and who you're going to serve. That's the spirit of Babylon. So I've probably like not done a super good job of encouraging you so far. This is real. This is serious. This is prevalent. We need to pay attention and be alert to this. However, the rest of our text is going to kind of put this in a positive spin. I want to read verses 8 through 21 of Daniel chapter 1. Open your Bible back up to there. So that's the context Daniel is living in. It's bad. It's bad. That's the context we're living in. It's bad. But, verse 8 says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank, Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And he said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who have your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. See, he fears King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel fears King Jesus. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over them, Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. I don't know why that's fun to read, but it is. Then all the youths that who ate the king's food so the steward took away their food and, they, and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. We're going to see that next week. At the end of the time, the three-year education period, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So in the midst of this fallen, broken, corrupt, twisted, fallen culture, we're going to see how Daniel responds. And we're in the same kind of culture. And as far as it's concerned with me, you have three choices how you're going to respond to the culture you live in. Three choices. Want to hear them? I'm going to tell you anyway. Number one is this. You can conform. You can look around and you can see how the world is going and how the culture is going and what everyone else is doing and what's normal and acceptable and appropriate these days. And you can say, well... I don't want to be the weird fish that's swimming upstream. I want to just go along with what everyone else is doing because I feel like it's harder to swim upstream and I don't want my life to be harder, so I'll just do what everyone else is doing. That's conforming. That's not going to work. Again, because Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. And if you conform, you are succumbing to the spirit of Babylon. You are settling for less. You are not walking with Jesus as you could be. You are not experiencing true life. And by the way, if anyone's out there going, oh, no, no, I want to conform uh, so I can reach more people. I want to, like, be relevant in the culture. Guess what? That's not going to work either. 
All you're going to do when you conform, you're just going to ruin your own witness. That's all you're going to do, and you're going to be miserable. So we can't conform. Not going to work. The second thing you could do, wrongly, is you can complain. <laughs> you can complain. You can look around at the state the world is in and say, oh my word, this is terrible, and look what's going on, and look what's going on in our schools, and this is so awful, and the culture, and, and you just complain, and you hop up and down, and you get mad in the face, and you don't do anything else about it. You just want to complain. I don't mean this wrong, but I think somebody, someone, some few ones may need to hear it. I've seen some of us do this. Yes, you don't have to like what's happening in the culture. No one's asking you to like it. You should dislike it. But if all you do is complain about it, you just want to vent and run your mouth and flap your lips, you're going to make yourself miserable. You're going to make everyone else around you miserable. And you're going to not be very effective in your work as an agent for God's kingdom. Daniel's response, he says, yeah, I don't like what I'm seeing. This is not good. It's not godly. But you know what? Here I am. I'm going to make the most of it. I'm not just going to complain. I'm going to do something about this. We'll see that in a minute. But I would just remind you, friends, if you're someone who's just sick of how the world is going, you're just disgusted by it, and you just are up at night, and you get grinding your teeth about how mad you are about it, I would just remind you something. You're not here just to complain about it. God has put you here. Think about this. God in his sovereignty has put you here in this place at this time in history in the middle of this culture for a reason. He wants you to be an agent for his kingdom. He wants you to represent him. He wants you to be effective in the fallen culture, not just complain over it. Big difference. The third thing you can do, and this is the right response, this is what we see Daniel does, you can commit. Right? You don't conform, you don't complain, you commit. We see this in Daniel. He is obviously someone who loves the Lord. He is obviously someone who is full of the Holy Spirit. And I will say it this way. The only way you will succeed in combating the spirit of Babylon in your life is by the Spirit of God. It's not just by going to church. Glad you're here. Please keep coming. It's not by your good behavior. It's not by trying really hard. You need to be full of the Spirit. And when God fills you with his spirit, it's because you've said, Lord, here I am. I want you. I want to be used by you. I'm your person. Fill me, Lord, with your spirit. That's the only way. That's the only way. See, there are things happening in Daniel's life that he can't control. The education, for instance. He's going to school in Babylon. He's being brainwashed in the classroom. But he completes it. Right? He doesn't just revolt. He, he goes through it. But he's full of the Holy Spirit, so he knows, okay, I'm learning all this stuff, but I'm not going to believe it. Yeah, I'll, I'll write it down on my test to give you the answer you're asking for, but I don't believe this stuff. That's an example. He commits to the Lord through it all. He follows the Lord through it all by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, I will just declare this today. It is possible for you to overcome the spirit of Babylon. You do not have to be dragged underneath the riptide of the spirit of Babylon, but it's only by the spirit of God that you will do it. Only by the spirit of God. Look what Daniel does in verse eight. It says, he resolved to not defile himself. Everything bad going on around him, he resolved to not defile himself. So in his case, it pertained to like food and drink. Israelite worship, very connected to things you ate and didn't eat and things you drank and didn't eat. For Daniel, as a Jewish person, for him to eat and drink that stuff, he would have defiled himself. It's not quite the same for us now, but you see this. He's surrounded by all the garbage, but up until this point, he's not defiled yet. You can be surrounded by the garbage, but not be defiled. But if he had participated in it, brought it into his life, bought into it, then he would have been defiled. But he says, no, I'm not going to do that. A couple of things you need to know. Because here's, listen, listen. We're in Babylon right now. You are, I guarantee you already have been. You're going to have things rub up against you that are not from God. Things that everyone else in Babylon is doing, but they're not for you to do as a Christian. Number one, you need to know what God says. 
If you don't know what God says, if you don't know what God's heart is for you, if you don't know what God's expectations and desires are for you, how are you going to know when you come into a compromising situation what you're supposed to do? You need to know the Word. Let us be a people who are growing in our knowledge and our application and understanding of the Word of God. Okay? Second thing is this. We're not talking about just religious observance here. Right? It's not just about, well, okay, I've got to just follow the rules and make sure I follow, the, and follow those rules. It's not about the rules, first and foremost. If all this Jesus stuff is is religion to you, I guarantee you, when you're in the fire, when the heat's turned up onto you, that house isn't going to stand. This is more than religion. It's more than religion for Daniel. It's the heart. It's the relationship. God, I love you. I desire you. I want to honor you. And therefore, I'm not going to do this thing that's going to displease and hurt you. See the difference there? Not just religion. We're going to come into situations where we need to have that same resolve ourselves. And we, we need to know how to respond. So look what Daniel does as we start to wind this down. It says, Daniel asked the chief of the eunuchs about the vegetables and stuff. He asked the thing. So just stack this up here. The order has just come down from his superiors. See, Daniel has no rights. You have no rights in Babylon. On paper, you have rights. You don't really. The order comes down. Here's the food you're going to eat. Daniel says, well, I, I can't go along with that. And his first instinct, right, he doesn't conform. He doesn't just do it and he knows he shouldn't. He also doesn't just rebel. Well, to heck with the king's orders. I'm going to do what I want and be disrespectful about it. Look how respectful he is. He goes and he asks, hey, is there any way we can work this out? Is there any way we can come to, to a resolution? I don't want to cause trouble here, but I'm just not able to do this thing you're asking me to do. I'll just remind you, it says in the book of Philippians chapter 4 that our reasonableness ought to be known to everybody. It's really easy to be known for what you're against as a Christian. It's really easy to just get hopping mad and bouncing up and down and screaming and yelling and I'm anti this and whatever. It's a lot harder to be known for what you're for. Let your reasonableness be known. Let us be known as people who, yeah, maybe I don't agree with everything that Braden guy says, but he seems reasonable enough, right? I want to play ball with him. I'm not going to just say, well, never mind, you're an idiot. So you know, you know what I'm saying. The way that you respond to unfair treatment in your life is actually part of your witness. When you respectfully take a stand. See, you need to take a stand sometimes. I'm not asking you to never take a stand. God's not asking you to never take a stand. But... You've got to discerningly do it and respectfully do it. You see, Daniel here, notice about Daniel, he's not trying to change the culture with his response here. He's not saying as an act of public defiance so I can affect many other people, I'm not going to eat the meat and drink the wine. No, it's personal. He says, I, I can't do this myself. I want to stay pure before God. Now, what you're going to see as the story unfolds is through this resolution, people are affected. The culture is starting to take notice of Daniel and his friends. But where it begins, it's that heart. Look, I love the Lord. I'm not going along with this thing. Uh, yeah, I'll go along with my lot in, in life and I'll stay in this lane. But when it becomes a matter of sin or breaking my convictions or breaking faith with God, that's where I draw the line. And Daniel does that and he trusts. Look what he trusts, verse 12. He says, if you do this, just test us. Test us. There, let me say this. There is no logical scientific reason why Daniel and his friends should have come out of this stronger than the other people. These other people were eating good food, meat, wine. Daniel and his friends, water and vegetables. Like, what are you having for lunch? Just saying, right? I believe that's a supernatural miracle of God. He caused these guys to come out of this way better off, 10 times better than the other people who had eaten the good food. Why did that happen? It's in verse 9. It says, God gave Daniel favor. God gave it. Now, there's no guarantee that things will always go your way as a Christian. This is not all going Daniel's way. He's still got it really bad. Remember, he's a eunuch probably. Not going great for Daniel. However, God provides a way for Daniel to stay faithful to him, but also exist in the culture. Those two things seem like they are mutually incompatible. You should not logically be able to do both, but God provides the way to do both. 
Daniel stays true to the Lord and exists in the culture. It says the chief of the eunuchs listened to him. The chief of the eunuchs had no reason to listen to Daniel. Right? Daniel had no rights. He should have just been shut up and eat what's put in front of you. But he listened because God caused that to be. In verse 15, like I said, after the 10 days, they were fatter in flesh than the rest of them. Verse 16, they were allowed to continue on this diet. Even in verse 17, God goes on to give Daniel and his friends wisdom and knowledge and interpretation of dreams. He gives them gifts. And these guys likely were teenagers at the time. Young men. And God blessed them. And God provided for them. God came through for them. Guess what God wants to do in your life? He wants to bless you. He wants to come through for you. He wants to provide for you. Psalm 37, 5, great verse in the Bible. It says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Commit your way to the Lord. That's what Daniel did. He said, Lord, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I am your man. I am not going to defile myself with the things of the culture. I am not going to cross that line into sin because I love you and I want to please you. I'm yours and I trust you. And then the Lord acted just like he said he would. Because that's God. That's what he does. I don't know what things in your life you're getting rubbed up against by the culture and what pressure you're under to go along with the culture and betray your convictions. But if you commit your way to the Lord and you trust in him, he will act. But it begins with the commitment. It begins in your heart. It begins like Daniel with that heart of, Lord, I'm yours. Come what may, I'm yours. You may face difficulty, Lord, I'm yours. You may be persecuted, Lord, I'm yours. You may suffer. You might lose your job. You might be ridiculed. God, I'm yours. That's where it begins. And God shows up for Daniel and his friends. And as we see this book unfold through the coming weeks... Daniel and his friends end up in these positions of high influence in the Babylonian court. Instead of being these poor, enslaved people, now they're moving the needle forward because God provided it, because God had favor on them. Instead of being pushed around by the culture, now they're pushing back God's way by the power of the Holy Spirit. Instead of being harassed and repressed and marginalized, other people are going to start to take notice of Daniel and his friends because they, they resolved in their heart to please the Lord. Instead of coming under scrutiny and, and you guys are just going to get rained down upon and you're going to be thrown in prison or whatever. God provides them a way to thrive in Babylon. And he wants to do the same thing for us. Daniel and his friends are living proof in Babylon of the rule and the reign and the power of God. God, God is on his throne, friends. And the culture we live in is never going to change that. Ever. Instead, they are living proof that in the midst of the secular, godless, pagan society, God still shows up for the ones who love him. They are living proof that the purposes of God cannot be stopped by the purposes of man. They are living proof that the spirit of Babylon is no match for the spirit of God. And we can be that living proof as well in similar circumstances. But again, friends, it starts with the commitment. It starts with the resolve, the resolution, the surrender. Lord, I am yours. Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior, and I am your person. Babylon is all around us, but if you commit your way to the Lord, I promise you, you trust in him, I promise you, he will act, because he said so, and he's proven it. Amen?